0: There are specific roles that boards and corporations should not cede for wider debate. We, we pick up our phones and the line is working and we open our taps and the clean water comes out. That is, has to do with efficiently run corporations.
1: Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I'm joined by global economist, best selling author, and board director, Dembisa Moyo. She currently serves on the boards of Chevron Corporation and the 3M Company in the United States. We're here to discuss how boards work. Her new book subtitle is And How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World. Welcome, Dembisa. Let's
0: just start off with why you wrote this book. Yes, um, thank you so much for hosting me. And I'm delighted to be able to uh, share uh, my perspective on not only the important role corporations play, but the critical role of boards and how they might improve to get better. Um, My motivation for writing this book is twofold. Um, First of all, was really to reassert the importance of corporations at a time when there's been really a general backlash against market capitalism and specifically uh, a lot of questions about what the role of the corporation is in the 21st century, uh, especially given the huge ESG agenda. But secondarily, I was very, very keen to help people understand what exactly the mandate, as well as the levers available to a board are uh, in order to help effect change. I was struck um, and I have been struck um, over the 10 years uh, that I've been serving as a board member in the UK, in the US and uh, across continental Europe, that a lot of people, not just business school students, regulators, institutional investors, but also the very employees uh, in the companies where we serve as board directors, uh, don't seem to really understand what the role of the board is. Uh, And yet we do sit at, at, at the very top of the organizations and we have a very clear role. And I thought it would be important to articulate that. So you mentioned there
1: um, you also have served on boards um, in uh, the UK and Europe. So just remind us which
0: boards you used to serve on. So I served on the board of Barclays Bank for the full nine-year ter- nine term. Um, I have served on the board of SAB Miller, which was a beer company uh, which was acquired in uh, 2016 for $100 billion dollars um, in the largest transaction of 2016. I've also served on the boards of uh, um, a couple of companies, um, including uh, Lundin Petroleum, which is on co- in continental uh, Europe. This was a, uh, a Swedish listed company. So you've already touched on
1: it. But just tell us in a nutshell, what is a board of director of a company?
0: And what do directors like you do? So to put it in context, boards have existed, according to my research, and I put this in the book, um, since the 1600s. We have evidence that uh, early boards are really Emerged, uh, including specifically the in the Bank of England, and at that time they had about 24, 24 directors. I would say over the last three hundred plus years, the fundamental role of the board has not changed. In that, the board is responsible for overseeing strategy. The board is responsible for hiring and firing the CEO when it's necessary. And I would say more recently, we've added a third role, which is to provide oversight on the cultural frontier. And by that, I mean not just the non-negotiables, things like professionalism and excellence as we work in different organizations, but also really providing oversight in terms of the ESG agenda. That's the environmental, social and governance agenda, which now, according to JP Morgan, is about $45 trillion uh, worth of assets. And, And that includes things like navigating climate change, thinking about pay equity, racial and gender diversity, concerns about obesity and voting rights, data privacy. It's a long list, um, essentially a big smorgasbord of issues that the board traditionally uh, had ceded to government, but more and more societies expecting boards and corporations to opine on. Your subtitle refers to a chaotic world.
1: You write that there's a credible sense that the frequency of corporate scandals in the past decade following the 2008 financial crisis has far surpassed that of the previous decade and boards bear a measure of responsibility. So just
0: tell us why this has happened and what the implications are. It is true, and I talk about this also in the book, that in just 18 months, we had over 400 executives and including CEOs in the United States that were ousted from their roles because of Me Too scandals. And that obviously has led boards, um, and I'm certainly a big advocate of this, to revisit how it is we recruit candidates for CEO positions. And I'm very, very much uh, in favor of really shining a more uh, aggressive lens on issues of ethics. Um, traditionally, we evaluate candidates by thinking about their performance in financials or in operations or how it is that they behave in, in uh, areas of, of leadership, how are they a, a team player, uh, etc. But we haven't really uh, gone beyond references in probing and thinking about the ethics of uh, the CEO and, the, and how we build a stronger corporate uh, uh, culture in many organizations. And and in that respect, I do think that there's been a lot of work uh, that that has suggested that that things need to, to be much more transparent, and we are doing that. But the second area, just to the subtitle question around this whole chaotic world, is a more macro point, which is that we are moving into a, a very different era. I believe it's going to be much more progressive. By that, I mean bigger imprimatur coming from government in areas of tax and regulation. But also, there are massive trends underway, including automation and digitization, deglobalization of trade and movement of people in terms of how we tap talent and issues of the splinternet and a lot of other concerns that could materially affect the way global organizations are structured and how they operate and certainly moves us away from the the era that we've uh, experienced in the last 30 to to 50 years. I want to explore that in a moment but
1: just on the first point and that you mentioned you've had personal experience you write of several testing situations um, in your decade on boards including Enormous regulatory fines for bad behavior, massive corporate restructuring prompted by share price collapse, and firing chief executives you served on the board that went through four CEOs in just six years. What happened and what did you learn?
0: Yes, you know, it's, uh, it's, it has been quite a, a, an amazing decade. I also had a chairman die in office. I've had activists in the stock. You know, I had a company go from $60 a share down to $7 a share. Thankfully, the company did not go bankrupt uh, and it is very much a going concern uh, with the share price over $20 uh, today. Um, but but you, you're right. Um, there have been some harrowing experiences uh, at a very, very high level I I was looking back on my experience and having to find, regulate, and punish CEOs, and uh, over my my tenure, and um, one of the things that jumps out is that um, you know over fifty percent of the time uh, had to do with ethical infringement. You know, it sort of, it's, and, and and that might come as a surprise to people because you would think that it was actually that the CEO didn't meet. Uh, financial targets or something like that, but act, um, very, very often it had to do with uh, with ethical infringements. Um, but you know, more generally, I do want to be clear. I am not blaming uh, you know a uh, a CEO uh, for these type of things. I think there's something to be said about the process. Uh, you're right. So having four CEOs and uh, three chairmen in a very short period of time is not ideal for a company. And there was a lot of uh, lessons we had to learn about sort of enhancing and building the muscle around the work that we did in vetting uh, and thinking about what the needs of the company were. You write about how Barclays recruited you for the board and then took the strategic decision to
1: withdraw from Africa. Now, this is where a lot of forecasts highlight Africa's young population, growth prospects in certain countries. So tell us about that decision.
0: Well, I think let's just take a step back. Um, You know, Barclays has been around for over 360 years. I mean, just take a moment to to absorb that. It's been in existence longer than... uh, uh, um, the Bank of England. And, um, you know, as an African, uh, obviously, I was deeply hurt to so somebody who was born and raised in Africa, um, to hear and to see that uh, we had to sell out, I mean, driven largely by regulatory changes. Barclays had been in Africa for over 100 years at that time. And if you think about World War I and World War II, and our preceding board members being able to navigate those challenges. It was kind of a disappointment that we did have to uh, sell down the position. But look, I wasn't hired on the board to, to be a board member for Africa. I was hired on the board to. Provide the best judgment with the information that we are given at a particular time. And when we looked at our portfolio, which was expansive, not just in the United States and the United Kingdom, and not just in Africa, but across Asia as well, there were many other places where we had to sell down our positions in order to uh, uh, comport with the uh, regulatory environment uh, at the time. So, at a specific level, it is infuriating that something like a financial crisis in 2008 could lead to those type of draconian decisions since preceding boards for Barclays have managed to hang on to the assets, uh, as I said, through World War I and World War II. But at the same time, you know, my responsibility uh, is as, as a custodian of the business to ensure that these businesses are, uh, and of course, with my fiduciary duty, will continue as uh, organizations with going concern. And, and I'm thankful to say that Barclays uh, continues to, to, to live to fight another day. You share quite a lot of
1: stories about your time on boards and one of them um, struck me. You write about when a shareholder actually pointed to you specifically at an AGM, which is when shareholders get to uh, grill the board, as it were, and the CEO and CFO. And that shareholder asked why you were on the board. So What happened and what does it say about boards?
0: It's an incredibly embarrassing uh, situation for me. I was the only woman, I was the only visible minority on the board at the time. And the board was sitting on a podium. And you're right, a shareholder stood up in front of about 3,000 uh, fellow shareholders and pointed very aggressively saying, I want to know what the credentials of that statutory woman are that she should uh, have the right to serve on the board. And look, uh, you know, I was in one, in one respect embarrassed. I, you know, Nobody likes to be singled out. On the other hand, I was deeply proud um, that my parents sent me to school and that I had a very transparent uh, record Um, having served almost a decade at Goldman Sachs in the city of London, having completed a PhD at Oxford in economics and written books for economy. Um, So I had a body of work that I could point to that justified me being there. But I think it was a, a bigger lesson and that's why I wrote about it in the book a bigger lesson um, and takeaway is that, you know, as we pursue more diversity in gender, racial, um, but also just ideas uh, and, and more generally think about uh, inclusion, we never want to be or we never want to find ourselves as board members or indeed in C-suite or anywhere in an organization where people um, think that you're on a board because of your race or gender. And, uh, it's an, and, and rather than that, you should be there because of your talent and what you can contribute, and uh, I, it, was, it was very illuminating for me about how we think about pursuing diversity with gusto. Of course, it's an important thing. It generates better returns, makes us more competitive, but we shouldn't do it to the point where we end up uh, having the vulnerability of, of that kind of an embarrassing situation emerge. Um, but you know, on the whole, it was, it was a good lesson for me uh, to see how people think about these issues, and I was glad to, to be able to defend myself. <laughs> Well, you write about, um, indeed, who should sit on boards and quite a lot of these
1: issues that you highlight, which I know we'll we'll come back to, because obviously, towards the end of your book, you write about lessons and reforms. But in this particular chapter, you discuss the wide-ranging debate about who should sit on boards. And one of the, obviously, you mentioned activist shareholders and your personal experience. There's a lot of rich material there. And one of the debates you write about is around employees. Um, So, you know, just talk me through in terms of employees sitting on boards, um, you know, what you write about in in your book and what you've seen.
0: Yes. So the idea of having employees um, serve on corporate boards is something that is very much embedded in the structure of German boards, for example. They've got a two two tiered system and they have uh, employee representation in, uh, on their board. I actually just uh, published an article on Bloomberg talking about the fact that there are, you know, there, we have to appreciate that there are specific roles that um, we should not, or boards and corporations should not cede. For wider debate, of course, we can take both opinions and concerns, and we do that already. We collate stakeholders' opinions, but ultimately, decision making has to be centralised. The people who've got the broadest of perspectives and are able to weigh, you know, sort of pros and cons and trade offs of different issues in a way which requires a lot of very uh, delicate judgment. And so um, the the point about employees, I'll give some examples, things like how much risk an enterprise should take. um, How do you set compensation? What's the philosophy behind that? Um, you know, accountability and setting goals for the organization—all those things um, are, I think, are, are areas where it's always great to get input from employees and, and the broader sort of body politic and uh, a stakeholder perspective. But you know, ultimately, decisions have to be made, and I and I think that I am I'm generally of the view that uh, we do co- we do collate and we have a lot of perspective on what employees think. But the, the idea that employees um, should serve on, on, on boards is not something that's been taken up in the UK or the United States, um, where I've primarily served on boards. So you mentioned their
1: compensation, and one of the um, really striking statistics that you write about is the ratio of CEO pay to the average workers' pay, which in 1980 was 33 to 1, and it rose to 276 in 2015. And so this is one of the most uh, scrutinized areas, as you've just mentioned, in terms of board policy. What do you think should be done
0: well, it's a wonderful question, and I think a lot of it has to do with what the cultural norms are um, in a particular society. You know, clearly in the United Kingdom, the lens, and I served on the remuneration com- uh, committee at Barclays Bank, but the uh, conversation in countries that I would say are less market driven, um, you know, like the, than the United States, for example, um, there there are issues of fae pay, uh, minimum wages, ratios, the targeting of ratios. The the attitude in the United States is quite different. I mean, it's always evolving and always um subject to change. In the book, I talk about Abigail Disney, who's one of the heiresses, of the Disney fortune, who's very much an advocate for lowering um, salaries. But the point is that a lot of the numbers that you quote there, those ratios are tend to be much more skewed in the United States, where there is a, a much more, I would say, capitalistic sense around how competition is set. And one of the big reasons you see that differential change so dramatically is that People have moved from um, uh, looking and assessing, to, they've moved from looking at the compensation of the CEO vis-a-vis their own organization and they've been looking at the compensation of the CEO versus other sectors. And that's why you've created this, cre- this uh, in- creep or, in- or in- inflation uh, over time. But it's it ultimately very societally driven, it seems to me, um, in terms of how we think about uh, about uh, compensation. And the, the U.S. is very, very different, um, as I said, to places like the U.K., which have a, a much more a different cultural lens when compensation is discussed.
1: Well, you also write about linking compensation to improving diversity um, and thus Quote, I mean, quoting from your book, "holding their feet to the fire." So, do your boards
0: do this, and should other boards? Absolutely. Um, but diversity is only one aspect of the ESG agenda. You know, at a very high level, I I know for a fact um, the boards I serve on, but also other companies in which I'm involved, um, we look at ratios, and uh, we we basically as roughly ascribe about fifty percent. Of a person's compensation to their financial performance, how they generated sales, have they driven the business, etc, and then the balance another fifty percent is split between twenty percent let's say towards innovation, how are they driving innovation going forward, and thirty percent towards a lot of the ESG issues such as diversity, climate change, et cetera, that uh, we're talking about. So these things are absolutely embedded in compensation. And it's an important point because our levers as boards in terms of how we can actually influence change are quite limited. We can hire and fire the CEO, and that's a big role and lots of leverage there. But the other lever is compensation clearly have embedded a lot of the social agenda issues to into the into the how we actually set compensation um, at, the, at certainly at the highest levels of the organization and definitely much more percolating into the the, the sort of broader base and, and workforce.
1: On compensation because I do want to talk about um, climate change and other um, issues and the, the broader macro issues that you mentioned. But just on compensation, it just seems there is quite a lot of dissatisfaction um, about uh, compensation of um, CEOs and executives. So do you think more needs to be done in this area beyond um, what's already being done? Do legal changes, are, are they required,
0: regulatory,
1: or is it really, I think, still left up to, um, to boards?
0: well i think again it goes back to a lot of optics um at a, you know someone said to me you know look at where is uh, innovation happening who are the company where the, where are the companies at the tip of the spear That are coming up with the vaccine? Where are the biggest technology companies? If you think about this, take a step back and think about where the world is going. Uh, And the truth is, many of them are in the United States. Um, And people say, well, actually, there may be uh, a correlation between paying people, um, you know, these exorbitant, what might be seen as exorbitant in a a European lens, uh, salaries uh, into this idea of driving higher performance and driving innovation. They would argue that it's not an accident that Europe, broadly speaking, has tended to lag behind innovation. And we don't really see sort of cutting edge uh, sort of uh, ideas coming out of Europe. And it may very well be because there's this uh, perhaps over-regulation compensation. But other aspects, things like equity, long-term incentive plans are also heavily regulated. It's not just the base salary. And and I think that's something that we need to debate and have a conversation about because um, the numbers don't lie. Um, The biggest companies in the world right now are mainly skewed to the United States and China. In fact, Warren Buffett just a couple days ago in his annual general meeting had a slide showing the largest companies by by market cap I, without, you know, I have to go back and have another look, but I don't remember any European companies. I think you had the top 20 or 50 on there. I don't remember any European companies being on that list. Um, they were dominated by American and Chinese companies, places where I think compensation, people would argue, is, uh, is very much aligned to driving innovation and, uh, and for future success. So that's a debate we need to have. But I don't think, uh, you know, regulating a priori without having a, a more thorough discussion on these issues is, is going to land us in a good place.
1: So I wanted to come to climate change. It's obviously a massive area um, where companies and boards um, that sit on the top of companies uh, could do something about within the ESG agenda and and obviously beyond that. It's hugely under scrutiny. So it'd be interesting to hear how um, Chevron, uh, a major energy company that you sit on the board, manages this.
0: Well, you know, we have a management team and they can talk specifically about what they're doing. Uh, You know, I don't don't really feel like it's my job uh, as a board member, a non-executive board member to to sort of talk specifically about what the company's doing. What I will say is is a couple of things. First of all, I do sit at a very interesting intersection. As I mentioned, I was born and raised in in Africa, one of the poorest regions in the world where energy poverty is a real thing. Uh, In fact, there are about 1.5 billion people around the world who've got no access to energy. Uh, Linda, they wouldn't even be able to dial into, your, uh, into our Zoom call here because uh, they are, are, are ener- energy poor. And it's not just in Africa, South America, Asia, really where 90% of the world's population lives. There continues to be deep, deep concerns about energy poverty, which has long-term consequences. I secondarily ser- serve on the Investment Committee for Oxford University's endowment. So I'm very, very much attuned to the resistance um, for endowments uh, under pressure from students to invest in, uh, in traditional hydrocarbon companies. But you know, my third point, and you've touched on it, I serve on the board of a large global uh, energy company, which has been around for over 140 years. And I stand by the very impressive work that they are doing, not just in risk mitigation, things like carbon capture, uh, greenhouse gas emission, thinking about CO2 uh, uh, intensity. We're also spending an inordinate amount of money on all areas of investment to the upside, things like uh, solar, wind, water, biofuels, nuclear gen four, I mean, there's a whole list, geothermal, whole list of efforts that we're making for a very, very complex problem. We're 8 billion people on the planet roughly um, today. If one of us knew how to generate energy in a sustainable and uh, affordable way, we would have the answer. And so everyone is working very hard. These energy companies are at the tip of the spear in trying to drive This uh, agenda. It's not just Chevron, all the energy companies, they're making a very, very aggressive uh, stance in terms to drive success. And so, my view on this is that ESG in general, but specifically areas of climate change, they are urgent, they are large, they are important. um, But we should not be hasty and unreasonable because there's a huge risk with that kind of uh, sort of uh, haste, so let's say less innovative approach, we could very well. Uh, end up in, uh, in, in situations that are less sustainable and, and, in fact, worse than the intentions of, uh, of ESG. Uh, it's kind of like you don't want to fight uh, discrimination with discrimination. We all want uh, racial diversity in, the, in our boardrooms, et cetera, but we shouldn't want to alienate a high-performing white guy. So with, with the broad ESG agenda on climate change and elsewhere, a lot of excellent work is being done by incumbents like these energy companies, and it's foolhardy to, to think about defunding them or not really thinking about the broader consequences of a bad ESG or bad climate strategy could backfire. You know, people coming back in a very aggressive way or issues around uh, immigration that's disorderly and, uh, you know, lower growth standards and living standards for people more generally across the world. Dan said, now this of course is a chapter title of yours, What are the five critical issues no board should ignore? Well, you know, I was trying to make sure that people didn't think um, that that it was a bit of a misnomer from the title. And people got kind of focused on, oh, this is only for people who are new to the boardroom. Board members, existing board members have to be alive to a whole range of issues, including the risk of a deglobalizing and siloed world. And we can talk more about all of these. Um, The risk of a shifting investor base and the investor base is shifting to more passive, very large passive investors such as BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. And how should you be thinking about that? Um, We need to think more uh, strategically around the war for talent. How are we going to recruit in a world that's much more bifurcated, where immigration is becoming more challenged? Um, We need to think more strategically about technology. I do believe technology is going to be a big piece dominating the future uh, of the world. And how do we think about technology, not just, again, to the downside risks of cyber, but also thinking about quantum computing, data privacy? How does this make us better in terms of our, uh, our board work and how corporations can compete in a world of more automation? And then finally, really trying to make sure that board members are highly focused focus on the area of of short-termism, you know, the number of companies uh, that trades in public markets in the United States is down by 50%. A lot of that has to do with people being concerned about short-termism embedded in quarterly reporting. And I I do believe that there's a lot more work that we need to do in terms of driving um, uh, the sort of discussion around short-termism and how we can do better in that space. So those are the, those are the areas.
1: Yeah, those are big, big topics. Um, We we won't have time, unfortunately, to go through all of them. But just on short termism, I remember this um, being discussed years ago, moving away from quarterly reporting. It'd just be good to, to get your take on, you know, what would you like to see being done in this area?
0: Well, it's ultimately it's about not just the survivability of companies for long, you know, for longer periods of time, future centuries. When I say Barclays around been around for three hundred and sixty years, I hope they're around for another three hundred and sixty years at least. Um, and so I think that we need to. Uh, it's not just about that, but it's also about long-term value creation. We can't just have zombie companies operating. We need companies that are actually generating real returns and uh, value over time. And so in that regard, um, I am uh, very hyper-focused on on short-termism. Again, using the levers that boards have uh, around compensation, we are dragging the CEO's uh, thinking to longer term in terms of long-term incentive planning. But also we spend a lot more time thinking about strategically, what does the world look like in, uh, in, uh, in the future. And uh, if, you know, given the way the importance of the rise of China and the importance of technology, um, it's, it's more important to be building the, the business for the future uh, and for future-proofing the business as opposed to just thinking about the business in, in the here and now.
1: What do you think will happen if um, quarterly reporting was, uh, say, removed and uh, changed to annual reporting or semi-annual are you thinking along those lines, or is it not so much the structure of reporting, but the long-term drivers of the business?
0: No, um, you know, I serve on, and I have served on the boards of um, some of uh, private companies. Private companies don't have quarterly reporting, and there is a difference. Um, private companies have a lot more degrees of freedom, a lot more wiggle room in terms of thinking about how they allocate capital. They aren't driven by uh, concerns about allocating capital for the next three months or what that might look like optically they can see through that and so yeah there is to my mind a, a material difference that uh, could uh, could be explained by uh, and would be altered i think by uh, short-termism
1: and your final chapter proposes reforming boards it's titled innovate or die <laughs> tell me about your three areas of reform
0: yeah so the, the three areas of reform really mirror the three um, aspects or the three mandates of the board, which are around strategy, hiring the CEO, and also around uh, the cultural frontier. So with respect to, I don't want to give away the whole book, I'm hoping people will buy it, but with respect to strategy, really thinking about whether boards can play a much more uh, hands-on role, more material role as they think about strategic uh, oversight. Um, obviously, we don't have time or the energy, or nor is it our role uh, to be there every day to sort of second guess the the assumptions made for the for the strategy. But we do need to think about that um, quite uh, qu- quite in a thoughtful way. The second area is about CEO uh, recruitment, and that I'm, as I alluded to earlier, we, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done around ethics driving ethics, going beyond financials and operations to thinking about why ethics uh, is an important area for us to evaluate. And then the third piece, specifically in terms of my recommendations, I talk about uh, with the cultural frontier, we might need to think more specifically about having an ethics committee at the board level, um, a, a committee that can help to navigate some of these very challenging issues. I was very struck that today there's been an announcement that uh, Facebook's, I would call it uh, ethical committee of sorts, uh, advisory committee, is just uh, decided that they will not lift the ban on President Trump. And I think that those are a lot of ethical issues, moral issues, um, and cultural issues that companies need to navigate. And those are aspects that, uh, um, you know, a cultural uh, or an ethical committee would, would be able to opine on.
1: Don't worry, Denvisa, so There's lots of rich detail in your book.
0: We couldn't possibly
1: cover all of them in our podcast, but you've you've highlighted, I think, um, uh, just a large number of interesting, um, you know, issues that I really think that um, we should all talk about. And in fact. That's how you phrased it in your dedication. So you write, um, you mention uh, several groups, including the general public in your dedication. You write this book is for the public so they can better understand why successful boards and well-governed corporations are critical for society at large. So what would you like our listeners to take away? Well, it's really that point
0: that ultimately corporations um, are not elected officials. So on the one hand, Corporations do have an important role as good citizens in society. And we are now debating and thinking about metrics and how we should evolve um, from, you know, obviously from the business roundtable proclamations of 2019, saying that we have a broader responsibility for society. We need to thread the needle of being that better uh, citizen in society and the global economy without treading toes um, in terms of the issues of not being elected officials. Um, but I think also what I, what I hope people understand is that every single day, billions of, of goods and services are delivered around the world without incident. Um, yes, we've had the WeWorks and the Ubers and Persimons and Topshop issues in in the UK, as an example. Um, but overall, billions of goods. We get our IKEA boxes, and there's usually not an issue, um, not not a piece missing. Uh, we we pick up our phones, and the line is working, and we open our taps, and the water clean water comes out. That is has to do with efficiently run corporations, and I do think we need to at least acknowledge that. By and large, in a very complex global society, boards and the corporations that they serve are working. And a lot more work has to be done, but we do need to give some credit where it's due. Thank you very much to Dambisa Moyo. And do
1: check out her book, How Boards Work. And thank you all for tuning in. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business.